the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Folks, welcome again uh, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We get together like this every weekend on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando, of course. Uh, Alan Dempsey is our marvelous engineer. And Andrew Herdliska produces the show. And in this first segment, Sharon... Hottie Miller is with us from Durham, North Carolina. Her new book is out with Baker Books. It's called Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Uh, welcome, Sharon. Welcome to Central Florida. How are you? Oh, I, I wish I was there in person. I love Florida. <laughs> well, you come on down to see us anytime you can. I want to know the background of why mm-hmm. a book on just simply nice. What's going on here? Yeah, so the seed of the idea of this book actually came from my first book. I wrote a book a couple years ago called Free of Me, Why Life is Better When It's Not About You. And in the first chapter of that book, I think it was the first chapter, I just had this little paragraph where I was looking back on my childhood. I was raised in a church. I was raised in a Christian home. And I was a really good Christian kid. I was a nice Christian girl. I was rule follower, as a people pleaser, I was a really high achiever. And at the time, if you had asked me why I was doing all those things, I would have told you a lot of it had to do with my faith, that, that I wanted to be, you know, a good Christian. I wanted to honor Jesus. But in hindsight, I could look back and see also that the reason I was this nice Christian girl is that it was really beneficial to me to be a nice Christian girl. It got me a lot of approval from my parents and from my teachers and from my pastors, and I kind of lived to please them. And so I could see in hindsight that my motives were were really mixed and, and muddled, and I didn't know if I was, you know, a good person, a good Christian because of Jesus or because it got me things. So I, I wrote that just in a little paragraph in that first book, and then I didn't think I would write any more about it. But then that idea just continued to kind of haunt me. And I I think the reason it followed me is I realized that I had not left that tendency behind in childhood, but that it had followed me into adulthood and into ministry as well. And I noticed that it would creep up in moments when I knew that God was calling me to say something hard or something true, and maybe that was in ministry. Maybe it was a hard teaching that... But it's also in, like, relationships where you have to say something hard and uncomfortable. And in those moments, feeling torn. Like, do I want to say something that is true or do I want to simply be nice? Because if I say what's true, I, people might not like me anymore. This could entail confrontation or conflict. You know, as a minister, you know, people, like, as a writer, people might stop reading me. And so I, when I noticed this, this, you know, warring motives in me, basically, I thought, you know what, I need to take a closer look at at what is going on here, because I feel like I have these competing 
allegiances in my heart. And niceness has really served me well. And so it was hard to let go of it, even for Jesus at times. And so that, that was the inspiration for the book. You open up with this topic, the fruit of niceness. Uh, mm-hmm. What does that mean? Yeah, so as I started to explore this idea of niceness more, I realized that one of the reasons I had kind of deceived myself and been blind to my own motives, and why I think a lot of us are, why we kind of settle for looking good instead of actually being like Jesus, is that niceness looks so much like what we are called to as Christians. And so it's easy to kind of settle for this this mask instead of cultivating the real thing. And so as I was thinking through, okay, well, then how do we tell the difference? How can we discern our motives? And Jesus uses this really helpful metaphor of you can know a tree by its fruit. And in the context, he is talking about false teaching, but I think that that metaphor is helpful for a lot of different things. And so for this, I I think it's a really powerful metaphor where what are the fruit of niceness so that if any of these fruit are in your life, that can help you diagnose that maybe this is something you struggle with as well. And so I started looking, okay, what what are the bad fruits of niceness? And I discovered things like inauthenticity where I would be, you know, instead of being my own self, who I really am, I would simply be nice because that was more acceptable to people. Instead of speaking the truth, I would be nice. So I noticed the bad fruit of cowardice, where I would really, you know, cow to just fear of rejection. Uh, another fruit that I noticed was self-righteousness because I was such a, a good kid growing up, and that came easily to me because it was beneficial to me, but at the time I would have said, it can easily to me because I'm just a good person. And so I would look down on people who were not nice, kind of like, what's wrong with them? So I, I noticed all these these different fruits, and you know, I thought, you know what, I bet this will be helpful to other people to diagnose, is this something they struggle with as well? Uh, now uh, our guest is Sharon Miller. Now I want you to talk about fake, the fruit of of inauthenticity. That's a mouthful. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, so I think that that's the very first one that I tackle, and I I think that it's a very, very obvious one. I mean, we're Central Florida, that, that's considered the South, right? Like, I mean, I know Miami is kind of like the North transferred. <laughs> Central Florida, y'all kind of have, like, Southern culture down there, right? Am I right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, down here, North Carolina as well, we're kind of known for, you know, being nice to people's faces, you know, but saying, like, bless their heart and stuff like that. Like, their passive-aggressiveness is, you know, big around here, but we're, we're Southern hospitality is kind of the mask that we put on. Uh, but I think we all know that that can, that can hide, you know, what is really going on underneath. And so that's the, the first really obvious bad fruit. But one thing that I look at in that chapter is the difference between niceness and kindness. Because I think we confuse those two things a lot, where we we think that if you're being nice to someone, that that is the same thing as the fruit of kindness, the fruit of the spirit of kindness. 
And one person that really helped me to discern the difference between those two is a guy named Barry Corey, and he is an author. He's got a book called Love Kindness, and he makes this really helpful distinction in it where he says that picture niceness as having soft edges and kind of a squishy core. And then harshness has hard edges and a firm core. But kindness is kind of a mix of the two, where it has those soft edges of niceness. It has, you know, love. It has patience. It has gentleness. But it has a firm core. It still has conviction. It still has a spine. And so when it, you know, runs up against adversity, when it runs up against rejection, it doesn't just collapse in on itself. Another way that I think is really, really helpful to think of this is how do you respond when someone does not reciprocate? So if you are nice to someone and they don't reciprocate your niceness, how do you respond? Because I know how I respond is I become just, you know, shocked and entitled and, you know, how could they? I was, you know, I was so nice to them, almost like there's this unspoken social contract that they have now violated. Like, I was nice to you, and so you're supposed to be nice to me. And that's ultimately because niceness, even though it seems to be about other people, it is really about you. You are trying to get a certain respect from people. You're trying to have this smooth path in the world. But kindness is not about how people respond. It is about counting the cost. My guest, ladies and gentlemen, is Sharon Hottie Miller. Uh, The book is called Nice. And we've got another segment with Sharon. When we come back, we've got a break for these messages. And then we will be back here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. That's what you're listening to. And, of course, this is the new AM 990. And FM 101.5, The Word. Stay with us. More after this. Sharon Miller is with us from Durham, North Carolina. We're talking about her new book, Simply Called Nice. Sharon, uh, the next topic is simply called Rotten, The Fruit of Corruption. Uh, Explain that one to us. Yeah, so this chapter is a little bit different than all the other chapters. So in in all the other fruits that I look at, the bad fruits of niceness, I kind of looked at, you know, what are the fruits that are produced in you by our allegiance to niceness, when niceness is kind of your, your compass and how you operate, what does it produce in your life? But one thing that I noticed, and, and this is backing up a little or zooming out a little bit, just looking more broadly at our culture and our culture's allegiance to niceness and how we measure people by how nice they are to us and how we will forgive all manner of ills in a person if they are nice to us. And I thought, you know, we really, I, I need to look at this as well, because what happens is very often because we value niceness in other people so much is that we will kind of look the other way when we discover things in their lives that are are problematic. And there's so many there's so many examples of this in the news right now, but but one that I look at in the book that is just tragic is the story of the USA gymnastics 
scandal and Dr. Larry Nasser. And for those who aren't familiar with this this story, this this doctor, he uh, would, you know, see these different gymnasts, these young girls, and he was abusing them, and he abused hundreds of them, actually. And the thing about it that that in and of itself is just horrible, but the thing that just makes it especially tragic is that a lot of these girls actually went to their parents, and they went to their, their coaches, and they went to other adults who should have protected them and instead, they were not believed because this, there was this upstanding, he was this nice doctor. He had this, you know, world-class reputation. And so again and again, these girls were told, you know, you must have just misunderstood, like he would never do that. And so these, these women, these young girls were just subjected to this as a result. And I think that this is, this is the deception of, of niceness, is that we are sometimes blinded to the reality of what is really going on in a person because they are nice to us, because of their reputation. And as Christians, this matters a lot, N- not simply because we don't want to be duped, you know, we don't want to be fooled. But the, the story of USA Gymnastics is a powerful and important story because it reminds us that discernment is not just about you looking foolish and seeing people truthfully, but as God's people, we are called to care for the vulnerable. We are called to protect people that are being hurt, and we will fail to do this if we settle for a nice appearance in somebody, if we are not discerning the way that we need to be discerning. And so the stakes are, are actually very, very high on this one, uh, that we, yeah, not be blinded by, by niceness in another person, but become people of discernment. Now, Sharon, talk about bland. Hmm. The fruit of cowardice, you call it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so again, you know, and there's a lot of overlap between these chapters, but in that, you know, and I've referenced this already, but when <laughs> there have been times in ministry, and I got to tell you, my, my husband and I, we, we just started a church a year ago. And when you start a church, you in the early stages, you just want anyone to help. <laughs> you just want anyone to come that you can get. And it's, it's so funny that this book has come out around the time that we're starting this church, because the temptation is to preach a message that is broadly appealing to everyone and to avoid saying things that are hard, to avoid saying things that take courage. And that feels good. Like, you, you think this will attract people, but what it really does is it makes your witness as a Christian just bland. It, it just doesn't taste like anything at all. It's just kind of vanilla. And that's what niceness does to us when we're just sort of broadly appealing through our niceness, when we just don't really stand for much of anything. What happens is the fruit of our lives just doesn't really have any taste at all. It might attract some people, but it won't attract very many. And so I felt like that was a great description of that that of cowardice in our lives. Now, Sharon, tell us about bitter, the fruit of cynicism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is probably one of the least expected fruits 
of niceness is cynicism. And that wouldn't seem to be a fruit of niceness because they seem so different from one another. But what I discovered in myself and what I've just learned a lot through reading and researching as well is that, you know, cynicism starts in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that that cynicism really takes root in your life is when you are disillusioned about something, where you had this ideal, and then that ideal was shattered. And the story that I tell in the book is actually of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And Chevy Chase's character at the beginning, he is just, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and optimistic about Christmas, and it's going to be like the best Christmas that he's ever had. And then as it slowly starts to fall apart, that idealism is shattered. And in its place, he becomes really cynical, and it just completely flips. And it's replaced with this bitterness about his family and about Christmas. And this is what happens when we have this, this nice, Christianity, this nice demeanor where we kind of believe if I just put good out into the world, you know, good will come back. And if you've lived any amount of life, you know that it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. And But when that is your way of seeing, when you believe that people are all, you know, basically good, and then you encounter evil, you encounter corruption, um, especially in the church, that, that shatters and what replaces it is is cynicism, is, is bitterness, is resentment, which is why, again, we need something more that is found, the foundation of our faith than just simply having a positive outlook. Now, Sharon Miller, mm-hmm. tell us about hard, the fruit mm. of self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I alluded to this one as well earlier that I, I because I was raised a really nice girl, I became really self-righteous. That was, uh, in some ways, that was actually my rebellion against God. I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I wasn't a rebellious kid. The way that I kind of kept God at arm's length was by never needing him. I was just so good. I didn't need him because I was so good already. But, yeah, I I became this really judgmental person because I was so nice and so good, and I used that for my benefit, but I looked down on, you know, people who made different life choices than I did. I didn't really understand grace at all, and so it produced this, this hardness in me as a result. Sharon, tell us about Mm -hmm. processed, the fruit of Mm. sentimentality. Yeah, so this is the last bad fruit of niceness, and this one I almost did not put in the book. Like, I I didn't think of it at first, to be honest, but the more I just dug into this topic and was thinking about different forms of niceness, different forms of, quote-unquote, nice Christianity, I realized that there's also this this sentimental faith that is really, really prevalent, especially in the Bible Belt, where Christianity is a culture. And it is easy to have a faith that is sentimental, that is very feelings-driven. And this plays out in a lot of different ways. It can play out in just immersing yourself in kind of Christian subculture, 
with just a feel-good, positive, upbeat, you know, music, wall art, T-shirts, you know, all that, it plays out in the ways that we elevate tradition. You know, if your family uh, celebrated Christmas this way every year and it doesn't have a ton to do with the actual birth of Christ, but just what your family has always done, it, it plays out with nostalgia, but it is heavily linked to positive feelings, that that is the role that your faith plays. And a lot of those things are actually not bad in and of themselves. You know, Christian music, Christian books, those are are all wonderful resources in some ways. But I think what we see in Christian subculture or, or in Christian cultures where people are Christian because basically that is how they were raised, and that faith is, you know, just kind of a source of inspiration for them that it leaves you fundamentally ill-equipped to follow Jesus into the hard things. Because the reality is there's a cross at the center of our gospel, and not everything we're called to feels good. And so sentimental faith, this nice sentimental Christianity, it just falls apart in the face of sacrifice and suffering. Uh, Sharon Miller is with us. Her book is called Nice. Uh, let's go to uh, this whole area of growing. Uh, uh-huh. you, you tell us to grow original, embracing uh-huh. your design. Uh, uh-huh. What does that mean? Well, let me back up just a little bit to give people a sense of the, the arc of the book. So the first half of the book, I look at these bad fruits of niceness to help people diagnose. Because a lot of people, too, when they hear the title, they think, well, I don't struggle with that. I'm not that nice. You know? <laughs> and it could be just that you're looking at the wrong the wrong things, uh, the way that we look at it. But So I, I look at these bad fruits of niceness. And then originally, when I was thinking about the arc of this book, I thought, okay, in the first half, I'll look at the bad fruits. And then in the second half, I'll look at the good fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. And it'll be sort of a photo-negative of one another. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that is not how fruit grows. That That is missing some steps. And it's not a coincidence that God relies on this agrarian imagery again and again. I think he's saying, look, look, there's, there's truth that I have embedded in creation. And what we know is that an apple farmer, if he has an apple tree that is growing unhealthy fruit, he doesn't walk over to the apple tree and just shout at it, bear better fruit. He doesn't do that. He has to cultivate a healthier tree, and then it will bear healthier fruit. But I think that that is very often how we think of growth, how we think of faith, is just replace this with that. Don't be mean, be nice. Don't be nice, be kind. You know, we see this all on T-shirts, on you know, social media where people just say, be kind, you know, be brave. And I don't disagree with that, but that's not actually how we cultivate those good things in our lives as Christians. And so I decided instead to devote the second half of the book to looking at how do we actually cultivate better fruit in our lives. And so I look at kind of four different practices that we see in in farming (laughs) that God put there for us to look at that help us to understand how we cultivate those things in our lives as well. Now, so it's grow original, 
Mm-hmm. Grow mm-hmm. deep, grow less, mm-hmm. grow wild. Mm-hmm. We, we've got a little yeah. over a minute, share, uh, Sharon, to cover mm-hmm. that. Uh, so do that, please. Yeah, so each one of those, I just look at different practices that we see in nature of, you know, like growing less is farmers thin their trees so that they don't grow as much fruit, but they grow better fruit. And with niceness, you know, I I think that we are nice to everyone to gain everyone. And God's saying, do less, but grow better fruit. There's so many principles like that just in creation that God has given us. And so people can find out more just by reading through those uh, final chapters. Sharon, how do people get in touch with you? You can find me on social media on Instagram at Sharon H. Miller. You can also visit my website, which is SheWorships.com. Say that again. SheWorships.com. Uh, the letter C, you mean, or S-E-E? Uh, S-H-E, as in Ah, she. I got yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I, I got it. Mm-hmm. Many, th- <laughs> many thanks, Sharon. Good job. Nice to oh, talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks <clears throat> for having me, Pat. Sharon Hottie Miller has been our guest. Her book is called Nice. Uh, We've got more, folks. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Sharon Hottie Miller, our guest in that first segment from Durham, North Carolina. We go to Novi, Michigan. Chris Palmer is with us. Founder and pastor of Light of Today Church. Uh, His book is out. It's called Letters from Jesus. It's about the book of Revelation. We're going to have a good visit with Chris Palmer. How are you, Chris? I'm doing wonderful, Pat. It's uh, so wonderful to speak to you and uh, be a part of your show today. Well, thanks a million. Uh, You open with a note on the seven churches of Asia. Uh, What do you write there? Well, you know, these are seven churches that are commonly not really understood because people kind of have a tendency to kind of skip over the book of Revelation, and uh, they're maybe afraid of it. But right from the beginning, we see seven churches that Jesus is talking to, and he has a message for them, and they fall into three categories of difficulty that they're going through. Number one, we see that Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, they're being tempted to assimilate into the ungodly culture, which is very prevalent in our society today. Uh, We see that there's Smyrna and Philadelphia, and uh, they're being persecuted. So Jesus gives them a message of encouragement uh, because they're facing this deliberating persecution. And then we see the Church of Sardis and Laodicea, and they're growing complacent because of their, uh, because of their, uh, t- their success and their fame, and uh, so Jesus has to rebuke them. And, you know, we see that these are common themes in our society today, and Jesus speaks right to them, and they're very relevant for us in this moment. Your book breaks down into eight parts, so let's get started. Part one, the vision of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. a study on the Word of God, society's fads don't change God's Word, you tell us. Absolutely. Um, You know, we see, this is a really interesting passage, because we see that John here, in writing the Greek, he makes a grammatical mistake. When you look at the Greek, you see that this is actually bad Greek, and John is actually a good writer in the Greek. He uses a lot of puns and play on words. And so you say, well, why is it that there's bad Greek writes in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, when he says that, uh, when he quotes Jesus saying that he is the one who is and was and is to come? Well, you find out that the reason he did that is to keep with the Hebrew Scriptures. 
and for him to translate that passage from the Hebrew Scriptures to Greek and, and carry the nuance over, he has to use bad Greek to do it. And what that speaks to is the fact that the God of the Old Testament is actually the God of the New Testament, and he hasn't really changed his word on anything. The way he felt in the Old Testament is the way that he feels right now. And so we see that even though society has a way of saying they want to be progressive and they want to change, it's clear here, especially the way John used the Greek, that even though society changes, it's sad to change, God's Word doesn't change, and God hasn't changed. And it's very emphatic from that point. Back. Let's go to part two now, Chris. Okay. The church at Ephesus mm-hmm. studies on love. Sure, sure. Well, the church of Ephesus, everybody knows it, because Ephesus was the church that, uh, number one, of the premier church. There's a church at that time in the uh, first century that was the mega church. It was Ephesus. Paul had started it. Apollos had preached there. Timothy had pastored it. Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to settle down in Ephesus. And they were really a ministry machine. This is a church that was really efficient. They were working hard. It represents a Christian that works hard, that's out there winning souls, that's out there telling people about the gospel. But the problem that Jesus had with the church, he tells them that, you know, you've left your first love. Now, scholars debate about whether this means the love they have for God, but probably not, because you wouldn't be doing ministry to that extent if you didn't love God. It was necessarily they lost their love for one another. This happens a lot inside of churches today, that we get so focused on ministry and doing the work that we really forget that it's about people. And so this is a church that really, as efficient as they were, they didn't have compassion for each other, and the Lord tells them, you know, I'm really happy about all the things that you're doing, you're persevering, but you guys lost the love that you have for one another. So this is a warning to us to continue to walk in love, and places love, which is part of what Jesus says is the most important command, to love each other, um, right there at the forefront of that. Chris Palmer is our guest. His book is out, Letters from Jesus. Uh, we now move to the church at Smyrna. Uh, you call that studies on endurance, Chris. Yeah, sure. Well, this is a this this is an important message today because it's not you know in the social media world that we live in, we see a lot of uh, God has a big plan for your life, and and we, it seems to center around us and the good that God is doing. And God wants to do wonderful things for us, but you know we find kind of here an anomaly is that the church of Smyrna, they've been faithful, they've been doing everything right, but Jesus tells them, he says that, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. He doesn't tell them that he's going to deliver them. You know, they're going through persecution, they have at that time, uh, Jews that were in the city of Smyrna that were telling them uh, that, that they're not part of the kingdom, they're slandering them, and Jesus basically tells them, have no fear, it's going to get worse. And this is kind of interesting because he doesn't think he's going to deliver them, but he tells them to be faithful and that he'll give to them the crown of life. And so this is interesting because he says that uh, that their their difficulty, their persecution is going to last 10 days. I think Greek 10 is the, is the smallest unit of measurement that we see in the book of Revelation. But we see that later on in Revelation chapter 21, Jesus says that there's a, uh, chapter 19, excuse me, that there's a millennial reign. And that's a thousand years. So when you compare ten to a thousand, you start to see the units of numbers. That ten is the smallest unit of number, a thousand is the largest. That our suffering in this age isn't going to compare to the glorious reign that's to come. And that as as Christians, we need to look at the life that's coming. We need to look at that this life is not all that we have. We have to remember that as difficult as it gets in this life, we have much more to come, and we should rejoice in that. And that's what Jesus reminds the church in Smyrna to look to the future, not to your present suffering in the moment. Chris, tell us about the church at Pergamum, studies okay. on worldview, you call it. 
Yeah, so this is important because, you know, worldview is something that everybody has. You, you know, we all see the world, it, it, you know, the way that we've been trained or the way that we've desired or how we've been taught. It's just how we look at philosophy, religion. Everybody has it, even if they want to say they don't. We all see the world through a certain lens. And here you have the church at Pergamum. They're Christians, but you had somebody that came in and began to reteach the Christians. And this was a gentleman um, who was teaching them the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is really important because uh, the doctrine of Nicolaitans was something that we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, that Nicholas, he was a, uh, an apostle. He began to uh, go out and preach the gospel. But by the time we see him in the book of Revelation, he's teaching error, he's teaching false doctrine, and really he's teaching the Christian that they should relax the way they live, they should go into sin, they should just kind of loosen things up the way that they live, because after all, you know, we have grace, and it's not important for us to to continue uh, living a holy lifestyle. And it begins to challenge the way that the Christians have been taught by the apostles, and they begin to loosen up the way they live, and we see that Jesus is tremendously disappointed with them uh, for this, but he also he also contrasts that with Antipas, who is a faithful witness. The Greek word Antipas is interesting because the word ante means against, and the Greek word pos means all. So his name meant someone who stood against all. And so he was one that was kind of saying, no, I'm not going to go the way of, of loose living here. Um, I'm not going to practice sexual immorality. I'm not going to loosen up my standards. I'm going to stand against that. And so we see here in the Church of Pergamon, we have to decide, are we going to be people that compromise our worldview for the sake of ease? Are we going to be like Antipas, who stands against it, even at the sake of being criticized by people in our social circles? And are we going to stand against that? And it comes with persecution, but at the same time, we see that in verse 17 of Revelation 2. It comes with a tremendous reward. So it leaves us with a choice today as believers, as especially in the United States, as things begin to change and the moral topography begins to change. Are we going to stand with Christ and hate what he hates, despite what people say, or are we going to bend? And that's basically Church Pergola. Chris, <clears throat> Chris Palmer is with us from his residence in Michigan, uh, his book, Letters from Jesus. Um, it's about the book of Revelation. Now, um, here we are, Chris, at the church at Thyatira, studies on holiness, you call it. Yeah. Yeah, so the church in Thyatira, I mean, they were uh, another interesting church. I mean, you see here that there's a woman who's come in, and uh, the Jesus calls her Jezebel. Now, it's probably likely their name wasn't Jezebel, but the name Jezebel represents somebody who's deceptive, somebody who's intimidating, and somebody who fools men. Uh, and tries to get them to uh, become passive, et cetera, et cetera. And she's pretty much doing the same thing, teaching uh, people of God to practice sexual immorality. And, you know, there's, there's a tremendous problem with this. You know, the Thyatirans uh, were, were undergoing that temptation, but we also see that the Thyatirans were, they were a trade, or we'll say the blue-collar workers of the day. I mean, they, they, they worked in leatherworking, they worked in manufacturing, uh, and so they all belong to guilds. Now, this would have included the Christians there. They belong to guilds as well. Being the case, these guilds were dedicated to false gods, Greco-Roman gods, and there was, of course, the debauchery that took place, the seriousness that took place. The Thyatirans had a choice. They could either go and participate in those feasts and, and, and hopefully not lose their job because everyone was required to do that, or they could refrain. If they refrained from being participants in these feasts, They'd be scorned by their co-workers, and they could lose their job. 
And so Jesus, they're having this question, should we or shouldn't we? And Jezebel, she was encouraging them that this is, this is something that they should do, because after all, we have grace, and there's no need to worry about that. Jesus will forgive us. All you have to do is ask forgiveness. And in, in addressing this, Jesus describes his feet. He tells them that my feet are like uh, burnished bronze. Now, the Greek word here, chokilibano, in the Greek, refers to an alloy that is far more pure than gold. It's, it's just, it is the, the best of the best alloy at the time. What Jesus is telling them is that, listen, if you want to walk with me, you have to endeavor to live holy and you have to live right, even at the expense of your job. I had an individual at my church, she was kind of going through a situation where she was faced with uh, temptation at her job, and she said, you know, Pastor, what should I do? I said, at the end of the day, you have to side with the Lord, and you have to side with Him and trust that your job's not what's going to provide for you. What provides for you is your relationship with the Holy Spirit and your relationship with Christ. And when you're in the secular world, you have to understand it's not always easy to take a stand for Jesus, but he rewards those that are faithful to do that. Now, <clears throat> I want you to explain to us the uh, church at Sardis, studies on, okay. the, studies on the Holy Spirit. So the church at Sardis was kind of a, a church that they were, they were lackadaisical. They, they really didn't have a lot of persecution that was going on in Sardis. They weren't facing the difficulties and challenges. And like, like some of us, you know, when things become easy, we kind of go on easy street. And, uh, you know, we become apathetic and we fall asleep. And the church of Sardis, they had fallen asleep. And Jesus tells them in this passage, he tells them that they need to wake up and strengthen what remains. And the Greek word here, wake up, is very interesting because it is an imperative. It's not an option. It comes off very strong in the Greek. And Jesus is telling them, you know, you need to wake up. Now, they would have understood what this meant because the Sardians had a very notorious city. At that time, King Cross, uh, years before, uh, in, in B.C. days, ancient antiquity, it's when the Saudi church had begun, you know, he uh, was very braggadocious and proud of this city. It was walled around. He didn't think anybody could defeat them. When the king of Cyrus, uh, the king of Cyrus, decided that he wanted to overthrow the Sardians, he surrounded the city of Sardis, and King Cross says, listen, don't worry about the Persians. We have these big walls. We don't need to even fight them. We can just, we can just be lax about it. And they didn't really show any concern about it. He became very apathetic and became indifferent towards it. That night, the Saudians went to sleep. And while they were sleeping, the Persians found a way to scale that wall, and they found all the Saudians sleeping. Cyrus came in, he took them all captive, and he enslaved them. And the Saudians remained in slavery to the Persians for many, many years. And when the Persians found them, they were asleep. So when Jesus tells the church of Sardis to wake up, they would have understood the contrast that they don't want to become spiritually the way that King Christ was, where they fell asleep on their spiritual life. They weren't in prayer. They weren't doing the things, the fundamentals that they were supposed to be doing. And then sin or unrighteousness or indifference or absolute, whatever it may be, overtakes you and you lose your witness for the Lord. Now, um, let's go to um, the church at Philadelphia. Studies on Christian living. Sure. Okay, so the Philadelphians were another church. So the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and five of them receive rebuke. Two of them don't receive rebuke. They just receive encouragement because they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. This is the Church of Philadelphia. They're one of the churches that's doing everything they're supposed to be doing. And there's a lot of—within these churches— you know, Pat, there's a lot of interesting components that I write about in the book, and I'm just highlighting a few. But we see here uh, that Jesus tells them that the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, this, is, this would have been extremely encouraging for the Philadelphians to hear, because the Philadelphians, they, they had, this city, had, the city of Philadelphia, had experienced earthquakes throughout its entirety. 
And these were, this is like the Los Angeles, the San Francisco, where all the seismic activity in the cradle of civilization took place. And they were constantly experiencing these earthquakes, so much so that they would, that years after, in 1780, there was this massive earthquake that just directed the city. And, of course, there were tremors that followed for years and years to come, and it terrified the city. And there was a constant unrest that took place in that city. And anytime they'd feel the earth shake, they'd run out into the field, they tried to hide. And so you can ex- understand the anxiety that the Philadelphians, especially Christians, were experiencing at the time. But Jesus tells them that the one who conquers and overcomes the difficulties and the challenges of life, of the Christian life, especially the persecution that they were facing, he was going to make them a pillar in the temple of my God. So, so what he, the Greek word there is stylos. It means something that just can't be moved, a foundation. It's just built deep. And he's telling them that he's going to give to them a very stable Christian-like, or a stable uh, place in the kingdom of God, a stable place in eternity, a stable place in the city of God. And it's encouraging us as believers to understand that in this life, we go through so much shakiness. You know, Pat, one day we're up, the next day we're down, one day we're doing great, the next day we receive a, uh, receive a, a, a bad bill of health, or we look at it, or something happens to our credit score, or something happens to our business, and it just seems like there's, you know, strikes and gutters the whole entire, you know, throughout our whole life. But Jesus is telling us that be faithful in this time. I'll be faithful to you, but you be faithful in this time. And understand there's coming a day where I'm going to make you firm. You're not going to have these ups and downs. You're going to be part of my kingdom. And that's really something for us to look forward to as Christians, to know that there's a day coming in eternity where it's not going to be these ups and downs to life. We're going to be firm in, in God. Chris Palmer is our guest. we got another segment with Chris. Stay with us. We're talking about his book, Letters from Jesus. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Chris Palmer is the author of Letters from Jesus. He's our guest. Chris, I want you to explain to us the church at Laodicea uh, studies on faithfulness. Fantastic. Well, this is probably the church that everybody knows because we see that, you know, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 doesn't really get quoted much. Being an Instagram user myself and, and on social media, I see a lot of scriptures that get quoted. I see very few that actually comes from Revelation 2 and 3. And here the, the church the church at Laodicea, um, you know, the, the scripture that gets quoted a lot is where Jesus says, when I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. But let's look at the context before that and see what he means. The church at Laodicea was the most prosperous church. They were wealthy people at that time. And it's interesting because you had church 40 miles from them, uh, which is the church of Pergamum. They're going through difficulties, and you have this rich church that's southern of them, the church of Laodicea, and, and, and they would be like the Milan of the day. I mean, they were the place where there was fashion going on. Uh, they were the biggest producers of a most expensive garment that was made out of black wool, and they were where medical breakthrough was taking place because they were producing an eye solvent that you put on your eyes that was supposed to help you see better or soothe eyes that were aching. And so because of this, if you had industry in that city, you were very prosperous. But this, including the Christians that were in the church, but this wasn't good because, well, it was good, but it wasn't being used because it was brilliant apathy in the church. You know, no problems, we have money, probably don't need to believe God, don't need to use our faith. And it was causing them to be apathetic. And Jesus tells them, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Well, that you were either hot or cold because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. What Jesus means by this is that you need to be extreme for the kingdom. Because at that time, the Laodiceans, as rich as they were, they didn't have good water supplies. 
Okay, so they would pipe in hot water from Heropolis, which is to the south. They would also pipe in cold water, which was from Colossus. But by the time that, and so cold water was good for drinking, hot water was good for medicinal purposes. But by the time both those water supplies got to the church in Laodicea, it was lukewarm, and it often caused bacterial infections, sickness among them. What Jesus was saying is that it's important to be on the extreme end and be to be effective for Christianity. Now, that doesn't mean be radicalized in that sense, but what it means is to be fully devoted 100% for Christ. No matter what we do, we need to be devoted to the kingdom. And he saw in the Laodiceans that apathy that was keeping them from being 100%, and they had ceased to be effective. So what he tells them is that even though you think that you're rich, you're really poor. And he advises them and says that, and so what you need to do is you need to buy white garments so that you can clothe yourself, and you need to buy salve to anoint your eyes. So he kind of plays on the fact that they're selling black wool, uh, they need to put, instead of the black wool that they're wearing outwardly, they need to put on righteousness. And instead of having medicine for their eyes, they need to put on spiritual medicine so that their eyes can open so that they could see the importance of serving God with their whole heart. And then he says, when you do that, then I stand at the door and knock, and I'll come into you. And he, he, he gives to them an invitation to dinner. The Greek word for dinner, that means the best meal of the day. You know, breakfast in the Mediterranean was light. Lunches were sort of light as well. But dinner was important because that's where you go and you eat with the people you love. And the fact that he invites them to dinner was telling the Laodiceans, you may have dropped the ball here, but it's not too late. Let me come in. Let's fellowship again. Let's do things the way that I intend them for them to be doing, and let's have fellowship together. And that serves to anybody listening today on your audience that they may have messed up. They may have done things they shouldn't do. But the Lord stands there and invites them to restore their fellowship with Him. And that just shows the love that God has for His people. Uh, Chris, why does the book of Revelation frighten Christians so badly? You know, Pat, that's such a good question, and I really appreciate you asking that. You know, it's because I think of misunderstanding, you know, there's a lot of symbolism in there that seems to be scary. You know, there's seven heads, ten horned beasts, and, and, you know, there's a lot of propaganda that's out there about decoding the book of Revelation, uh, you know, who's going to be the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. I, there's Christians that are afraid to use credit cards and, you know, pick up an iPhone or Samsung or whatever it may be because they think it's the mark of the beast. And, you know, that's really based on misunderstanding. Um, the book of Revelation is about staying faithful to the Lamb. It's about whatever situation you find yourself in. You're going to confront the political idolatry and you're going to stay faithful to the Lamb, no matter how wicked the culture becomes. And when we see that these symbols, the symbolism that we find in the book of Revelation really have to do more with the symbols of the culture and the ungodliness in culture versus some sort of, of, of code that means gloom and doom, it becomes a book of victory. Um, you know, Revelation 2 and 3, why this book, Letters from Jesus, I believe is, is a good read, is because... It sets the stage. I mean, the next chapter four to twenty-two is going to be uh, the visions that John has concerning the culture, and depending on who you were, what church you were in Revelation two and three, would determine how you see the Book of Revelation. Now, if you were one of the persecuted churches, you'd see the glorious triumph of Jesus, and you'd get excited and think this is a wonderful thing. But Pat, if you were someone who was backslidden, let's say the Laodicean church or the Sardian church, you might you might actually become a little bit uh, concerned and, and find a need to repent. You know, when my dad first got saved, he told me that the book of Revelation, before he got saved, it was a little frightening to him and caused him to be saved. Well, that's because he was involved in sin, 
and he hadn't given his life to Jesus. So you see the meticulous design of this book that the Holy Spirit has laid out, that it can be read different ways based upon where you're at in life to produce a desired result, which is ultimately so that you can give your life to Jesus and be part of his kingdom. What do you want uh, people to take from our chat? Well, you know, Pat, I would tell them that, you know, despite how the culture becomes, stay faithful to Jesus. And don't bend with the culture. Don't bend with popularity. When laws and regulations are made within a country, it seems that what begins to happen is that subconsciously people begin to, to surrender their morals to the law because, after all, it's become the law of the land. But we should get a morality from the Word of God. We should get what we believe in our worldview from what God has to say. And standing faithful to Jesus isn't always going to lead to a comfortable Christianity, especially here in the United States. If laws continue to be made that favor unrighteousness, we just have to stay faithful to the Lamb. So I would tell people today, as a believer, wherever you're at, in your job, within your family, stay bold for your witness for Jesus, because Jesus said in the last days he's looking to find people that have faith. That means trust in his word and trust in him. So stay faithful and don't bend your worldview to fit the worldview of culture. Chris, I want you to talk a little bit more about Revelation 3.20. That was the verse uh, many, many, many years ago that uh, pushed me over the edge in becoming a Christian. That that particular yeah. verse really nailed me. Uh, well, you know, I want you to talk a little yeah. bit more about it. Well, Pat, I just want to comment and say, you know, I didn't get a chance to tell you this, but, you know, you were a testimony to me back uh, when I, was, I used to be a big NBA fan. I still am. But in 92, I was in second grade when, when, when the Magic got Oh, my and goodness. I, I still remember the picture of you with the ball, and I remember my dad said, you know, he's an outspoken Christian. Look at what God did for them. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm just really thankful for your witness and for your, your standing faithful to the Lord uh, throughout your successful career. And uh, so it's an honor to speak with you today, Pat. Um, and to hear that. Uh, but anyway, that verse there, as I'm saying, has to do with uh, an invite, an invitation. You know, he wants to come in and eat with them. And so the word here, eat, is that not. It's not just eat, it's referring to uh, having dinner. And so, like I said, dinner is the most important meal. You know, if you think about it, many times your breakfast, you have it in a rush. You may eat some bread, you may eat some toast, some jelly. That's how it is in the Mediterranean day in the first century. Lunch, sometimes you have to eat lunch with people you're not really comfortable with. Lunch can be for business. Lunch can be with whatever. These are not your favorite people. Usually it can be that way. It's just people that you're at work with, et cetera, et cetera. But dinner is really where you make dinner plans with my favorite person, dinner with my family, going out to dinner with my wife, you know, going out to dinner with my kids. It's really where you have time to enjoy. The fact that you use the word dinner. I don't want to have lunch with you. I don't want to have breakfast. I want to have dinner. Jesus telling us. You know, Pat, when he called to you to be born again, to be saved, dinner lasts a long time. In the Mediterranean, it can last three, four hours. He said, I want to have this intimate fellowship with you. I want to talk. I want to converse. I want to share a heart. And you think about your Christian life, Pat, when God called you to dine with him, your whole Christian life has been a banquet with the Lord throughout your career. You're, you're with the magic, you know, with the Phillies, with your places that you know your writing career your motivational speech career your, your broadcast career it's been you with the lord dining with him feasting off of his word feasting off of his uh his promises and enjoying that sweet fellowship that he promises us and so when we say yes to jesus we're saying yes to dining with him and experience with uh, experiencing life with him and that is so much better 
than anything that the world could ever offer us. And that's how Jesus leaves that. And that is the introduction. And like I say, the book of Revelation is like a stage play. With that, the kind of the curtain goes down, and then all of a sudden there's a, a, a shift in scene, and the lights go up in Revelation chapter 4, and John no longer sees himself on the earth. He sees himself in heaven, and that's where Revelation begins. And it's Chris Palmer has been our guest. Letters from Jesus, the name of his book. We've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Again, uh, this is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In our first segment, Sharon Hottie Miller from Durham, North Carolina, talking about her book, Nice. And then Chris Palmer from Michigan. Uh, We had a good chat with Chris. Letters from Jesus, a really fascinating look at the book of Revelation. Uh, I've got a new book that's just out. It's in bookstores now. It's called Lead Like Walt. And we look at uh, Walt Disney uh, as a leader and what it was about Walt that made him such a successful leader. Even though he's been gone uh, from this world for over 50 years, uh, Walt's leadership uh, is well worth studying. Go up to Amazon. Uh, It's in bookstores as well in the uh, business section. Now, here's the deal, folks. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, Have a wonderful week ahead. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.